Hello. Greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Let's hear the word of Yahweh delivered to Hosea, beginning in Hosea chapter 13 and verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more, and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, Those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am Yahweh your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them as like a lion. Like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast. And there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of Yahweh, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. Return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words, and return to Yahweh. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more to the work of our hands, our God. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. My anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of Yahweh are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. And thus ends the word of Yahweh that was delivered to Hosea. We, from the beginning of the work, we learn that Hosea heard the word of Yahweh in the days of Uzziah through Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and Jeroboam the second king of Israel. This was a period of the calm before the storm in the 8th century. Jeroboam ruled over a politically and economically prosperous Israel in the better part of the first half of that century. But Israel would then endure five kings in 30 years. And the Assyrians would capture all but Samaria in 732 and would come back and eliminate the rump state in 722. 
And so Hosea is speaking to the people in a time of prosperity that would turn soon to destruction, and he would live to see it all play out. The first three chapters of Hosea feature uh, this parallel. Yahweh calls Hosea to take a wife of whoredom uh, and to have children of whoredom. And that's a sign act indicating God's coming judgment. Uh, And what Hosea is living is what Yahweh has experienced with Israel, uh, a faithless, adulterous wife. Yahweh brings forth a charge against his adulterous wife Israel, that she believed that she received her produce from Baal when really it was Yahweh who provided it, that she lavished gift on her idolatrous lovers and did not give the service due to God, and that he would come in judgment and then she would recognize her heir, that Yahweh would not abandon Israel, but he would restore them. And so Hosea was to love his wife again, as Yahweh will love Israel again in chapter 3. Then we begin to see the judgments and indictments of Yahweh, the proclamation of the indictment that Israel is full of blood, destroyed by lack of knowledge, that the priests are condemned, the people are as pagans in Hosea chapter 4. Chapter 5, judgment is rendered. Israel's saturated in idolatry will be destroyed. They're going to seek Yahweh, but he's not going to be there for them. They are further denounced as covenant transgressors. Uh, after a hope of future healing and restoration, it's Israel who maintains the pretense of grandeur, looking to foreign policy to save them. It's actually going to be their demise. Indeed, Israel is going to reap the consequence for her sins, the destruction. They have sown the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. It's a day of recompense that comes against Israel, that Israel is detestable in chapter 9. Israel is trusting in kings and foreign policy in chapter 10, and therefore judgment is coming. In chapter 11, Israel is seen as Yahweh's rebellious child that Yahweh would heal, and Yahweh is going to recall, recoil at what he will have done to Israel, and he will restore but in chapter 12, Yahweh's begun an indictment against Israel, uh, living as Jacob and embodying the characters of Jacob as a young man without developing the faith that Jacob would develop in his character. And because of that, they're going to be exiled again. And chapter 13 really is a continuation of that same uh, indictment, the guilt of Samaria and Ephraim. And then the whole work concludes with the appeal of chapter 14. So this final denunciation uh, begins about with how Ephraim the section begins with Ephraim powerful in Israel uh, but when he turned to Baal he committed sin and died and now they abound in sin they make images and they kiss calves they're like the morning dew or mist they're like the chaff or the smoke and they're gone quickly in the first first three verses now verse two has some textual uh, complications as we are in the English standard uh, what it is what is it that's being said here those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves is probably going a little far uh, the text has elements of sacrifice a man and the kissing of calves so probably uh, the American standards reading of they say of them let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves or the new revised standard sacrifice to these they say people are kissing calves are probably a better way of looking at it. it's not that actual human sacrifice is necessarily going on as much as those people who are offering sacrifice are also kissing these calves, also uh, giving service specifically to these idols uh, na- made in the name of Yahweh at Dan and Bethel. Instead, in verse 4, Yahweh is God of Israel from Egypt. They knew no other God. There would be no other Savior for them. He provided for them in the wilderness, and they were filled in the pasture, that is the land, because of they were made arrogant in their heart, and they forgot about God, that he's going to be to them like a lion, uh, or a leopard, a mother bear bereaved of her young, or like a lion. He's going to uh, eviscerate Israel. And since they have made their help their adversary, Israel is going to meet their doom in verses 4 through 9. 
It's interesting in verse 5, uh, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, the land of drought. New Revised Standard will kind of expand a little bit and say that I fed you in the land. Uh, even if that's not there explicitly, that's the idea with the whole idea continuing uh, that they had grazed, they became full. Um, it's interesting in verse 7, we also have this idea of lay in wait. I will lurk beside the way in the ESV. It's the word is Ashur. And it's almost like a wordplay with Assyria there. Uh, very uh, interesting. And the parallels of Deuteronomy 8 are compelling, and we're going to note those in a few minutes. Now, Ephraim sin, excuse me, Yahweh, excuse me, uh, wonders where their king has gone in verses uh, 9, uh, verses 10 and uh, 11. Uh, these kings and judges they had wanted so badly. Where are they? Well, God gave a king in their, his anger, and he took him away in his wrath. You can even kind of hear the pain or the the sharpness of that line uh, going back to 1 Samuel 8 through 12 and uh, the less than uh, ideal circumstances under which the king Saul was uh, selected and how that meant they had rejected Yahweh as their king and uh, now in his wrath of judgment the king is going away. Now Ephraim's sin is bound up and kept in a store. Ephraim is considered like an overdue baby who does not come at the time of birth. Um, will they be ransomed from Sheol or redeemed from death? Uh, we speak, you have to talk about the sting of death in Sheol. That compassion is hidden from Yahweh. The east wind, which comes from the desert, will parch and dry up all of Ephraim's prosperity. And Samaria, the city, is going to bear guilt on account of the rebellion. Uh, they're going to die by the sword. There will be death of children. Uh, pregnant women will be ripped open. All of these are awful. They almost likely happened, and they're all evocative. These are... Uh, used over and over again to describe the wholesale extermination of a city, uh, indication of the judgment of God upon them. Now what's interesting is uh, in verse 14, we've got a, a great textual thing uh, of, of, of interest. Uh, in many versions, uh, the, it's read as a statement of fact. I shall ransom, I shall redeem. But seeing that the English standard vacillates on this, but American standard, New American standard, New King James has it as a statement. I will redeem them from the power of Sheol. I will ransom from death. Uh, but the New Revised standard, and in, in, in also in some version, the English standard is read as a question: Shall I ransom uh, from the power of the Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? The text has been vocalized and handed down. Would favor it as a statement. But what's difficult about that is if you look before and after, it's all a, a statement of condemnation. And it would seem to be a strange aside here for it to be, in context, a message of, of hope and, and uh, affirmation. Uh, so the context uh, seems to favor it as a question, and it wouldn't be too difficult to imagine it revocalized so that it would work as a question. Uh, very much like Isaiah 117 with... Um, the idea there of your sins are as scarlet, will they be white as snow, or they shall be as white as snow. The same uh, interpretive issue is going on there. So this is the end of the indictment. Uh, the end of the indictment comes with the declaration of judgment. It's not going to go well for Israel. We're going to have little ones dashed in pieces, pregnant women ripped open. But then there's this final appeal for repentance. Uh, Israel should return to Yahweh. They've stumbled because of their sin. They need to bring words. They need to beg Yahweh uh, to take away their iniquity, to accept their good things uh, and their sacrifices. They'll use uh, sacrifice bulls to pay for their vows. They recognize they're not finding salvation in Assyria. They're not going to find salvation through the military. Uh, the orphan finds um, uh, mercy in Yahweh. 
And that's in verses 1 through 3. And we also see that if they were to do so, Yahweh would heal their apostasy and love them freely. Uh, ultimately, his anger will turn aside from them. And we have all these beautiful pictures of what he is going to do to Israel. How beautiful Israel will be. Uh, and many of them are in comparison to Lebanon, which is a great, pleasant place uh, that Israel would have understood. And so the question really is, is it would or will? Uh, is Hosea 14, 4-7 dependent upon the repentance of Israel? Uh, and to an extent, of course, because Israel needs to trust in Yahweh to return and be restored to begin with. But in a lot of ways, this is like the promise in Hosea 11, 8-11. Something envisioned after the time of judgment when uh, Yahweh will turn back to his people and he will bring them back. But in reality, for the northern kingdom of Israel, this will only be fulfilled in Christ. And so we have the ending of the words of uh, Yahweh to Hosea with the question to Ephraim in verse 8. Well, what do I have to do with idols? It is I who answer, look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. So the benefit comes from him. But then we have verse 9. And of all the book of prophets, Hosea ends in a most extraordinary way. It's a summons for the reader to exercise wisdom. This is most likely the compiler, or if we would use the word editor, uh, who rhetorically is asking, who is, you know, or, who is wise, let him understand these things, or just whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. Um, the ways of Yahweh are right, the upright walk in them, transgressors stumble in it. Something actually very consistent with the first psalm. A very consistent message. Now, some people get bothered by the hand of the editor or compiler here. What is he doing writing here? Who does he think he is? But hey, consider the end of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1.1 1, 1, and 12.9-14. Uh, the, whoever has taken this text and, and put it together has clearly bracketed off the words of the preacher and then goes on and provides some commentary. In fact, even the final summation... Um, of Ecclesiastes is not from the preacher himself. It's from this uh, editor compiler to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. Uh, the current state of the book of Psalms is also uh, bears the hand of somebody putting things together in a certain way. And we could get all bothered about that, but we're probably better off to see it as an emphasis as to why Hosea's prophecies are compiled or that somebody later felt the need to make this statement. We've, we're discussing now the end of Hosea. In previous discussions, we've gone through the rest of the book of Hosea. And a lot of times when we're doing this kind of discussion about the text, we're, we're very interested at first see what does this text mean to those to whom it was originally written? It's hearers. Uh, what is Hosea warning his fellow Israelites in the 8th century about? But Hosea is placed where it is very prominently. He is the first of the 12 prophets. Uh, the minor prophets, and he's been preserved for generations. Yeah, sure, for what it has to say to Israel, but really also for what he continues to have to say for the reader as a so-called case study. The hearer may not have known what was coming upon Israel, but the reader certainly does. And so the reader can approach Hosea and the message he gives quite differently than those to whom Hosea preached, because we, the readers... And we're all in the same category in some way or another since uh, the book was finished. We know that Hosea is right. We know that the dark clouds are coming. 
you know, it's been trying so hard throughout the explication and exegesis of these passages to forget that for a moment, to forget what we know is going to happen and try to get into the mindset of those uh, for whom these events uh, have not yet happened and they're living in the moment. But now we can dispense with that. We can set that aside and say, okay, no, we do know what's going to happen. We can know that what Yahweh warned about came to pass. And what is true of Hosea and Israel would later prove true regarding other prophets in Judah. It would prove true about Jesus and Second Temple Judaism and between God and his people throughout time. And that's why we see many quotations in the book of Hosea, many cross-references of Hosea, because it, it continues to work. And so even if it's not written by Hosea himself, Hosea 14.9 is actually a very crucial part, not just of Hosea, but of the prophets in general. That those who read later may not be in the exact same contextual situation, but the words of the prophets maintain relevance and concern long after they and their original audience have passed away because the reasons that they need to speak to Israel tend to persist in some form or another and later generations do well to learn from the condition of Israel that time what Hosea said and, it, and the consequences that came because they didn't listen to him. And this is how the book of Hosea ends. So what can we gain from this final section? Well, most of Hosea 13 covers well-worn territory in Hosea, denouncing Israel for its iniquity and promising that judgment to come. But what he says in verses 4 through 6, Yahweh your God from the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, there's no Savior besides me, I knew you in the wilderness. Uh, when they grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up, they forgot me. It's very important to keep that in mind in light of Deuteronomy 8. Because in Deuteronomy 8, Moses explains why Yahweh led Israel through the wilderness, to humble them, to teach them, uh, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Yahweh. The whole point of that man in the wilderness experience was to teach them dependence upon God. And from that, Moses will warn the people that when you enter the land, watch out lest you prosper, you gain all this food and all these resources, you forget about Yahweh, because then they would perish. And Hosea is coming along... Uh, 700 odd years later and says that that's actually exactly what's happened. Yahweh is God. They're God from the days of Egypt. That the reference, Always those references have reasons. He's trying to evoke the past and their situation and their dependence upon God. He's the only God they've ever known. He fed them and knew them in the wilderness. They fulfilled and they did forget God. That Israel received the blessings of God. And it caused Israel to swell with arrogance. They presumed that what they had gained, uh, they had because of their own strength. They received from other gods and so on. They neglected their devotion and service to Yahweh. And while we might think, well, it's so different today, it's really not. Because people in distress or poverty tend to turn to God. They receive blessings from God, but then they get satisfied. They get puffed up in arrogance, and they forget about God. And they presume that everything that they've obtained, they have from their own hands. Reminded of the guy who wanted to build bigger barns in Luke chapter 12. Uh, the warnings in 1 Timothy 6 about uh, covetousness and seeking great gain. Now this kind of transition may take place within one generation. It may take multiple generations. And we look at our own life, and how, should we be surprised that as Western civilization, so to speak, has prospered, there's greater material security, people have turned aside and neglected God and his service. Why does the ground tend to be more fertile for the gospel in what we call, quote-unquote, third world countries than in the United States of America? Uh, aren't we doing the same thing? We've turned and trusted other gods, believe that we've gotten all the things we've had from other sources of, of, of security, i.e. other gods, and have not given God the true God, Yahweh, the service that he deserves. And therefore we have to ask ourselves, what judgment are we going to incur because we've neglected that? 
And that's something we need to think about. As we've noticed throughout Hosea, as time goes on, as the passages go on, the uh, messages seem to get darker. And they don't get much more dark than we see in chapter 13. And we have this most visceral image that Yahweh is going to put himself against Israel like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. Uh, It's not a very pleasant image that, in fact, he is going to rip out their enclosure, which is their ribcage. He's promising really to eviscerate his people. It's a very chilling reversal because throughout Hosea, Yahweh has been set forth as their healer, their helper. But since they turned away from him, he's now going to be their destroyer. He's going to be destruction to them. And again, it's worth pointing out that very few in Israel would have seen themselves as opposed to Yahweh. They would all agree that Yahweh was God of Israel, that Yahweh delivered their ancestors out of the land of Egypt. And so in many respects, we see they are self-deluded. And we see the consequences there. It's not enough just to profess God. We need to actually trust in God and to follow him. And if we don't, then we might just find that that adversary in the road that we imagined was Satan wasn't really Satan. It's God. Because we have turned aside from his proper service. And that judgment will not be pleasant. Now, in chapter uh, 13, we do see how glum Hosea's message gets. But thankfully, we can see in chapter 14 that there is hope. There's always hope for Israel to repent and to avoid the fate that has been prophesied. In fact, Hosea will give voice to what repentance would have uh, looked like in chapter 14, 2, and 3. That they would have to ask God for the forgiveness of their sins. They would have to uh, sacrifice on account of their vows. They would no longer trust Assyria or the military. And they wouldn't call God the work of their hands. And what's interesting is that these are exactly the main points of critique throughout Hosea. Idolatry, trusting in their own military might and foreign policy, and their general distance from Yahweh. And so Yahweh's not being some kind of cantankerous curmudgeon. It's not a situation where something gets better and all of a sudden, well, now this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, as if the goalposts always move. No, the Hosea's critique centers on certain forms of disobedience and rebellion. And these are going to have to be addressed if the people are going to receive forgiveness and healing. And to this day, God calls people to uh, repentance in Acts 17, 30-31. We need to repent of the works of the flesh, and we need to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, 17-24, God does not change these rules in the middle, but he's expecting us to trust in him and have all these things follow uh, after them. And finally, as we said, we've got this amazing ending to the book of Hosea that the prophets continue to be relevant. And that's maybe why Hosea is elevated the first place among the twelve. He spoke, and within his own lifetime it happened. So much of Hosea's message seems directed to Israel in prosperity, although maybe there's some of his messages that come later when there's only the rump state of Ephraim, Samaria, left. But from the beginning of the book, we know that Hosea prophesied, or at least lived from the days of Jeroboam, son, uh, king of Israel, to the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, Hezekiah ascended the throne in the third year of Hosea, king of Israel, only six years before the fall of Samaria. So all the things that Hosea warned about came to pass. The Assyrians invaded, they destroyed the cities, they killed the people, they devastated Israel. And so it's hard to argue with Hosea. The whole experience of Israel at that time from, would be, from then on, a lesson for future generations of the people of God. And thus Zechariah, in the beginning of Zechariah, Zechariah warns people, Hey, didn't uh, Yahweh send the prophets to your fathers and they didn't listen and they died? And then 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13, that all these things happen to Israel as an example, that we may not fall in the same power of disobedience. 
And so Hosea's message, like the rest of the prophets, shouldn't be locked in a closet as mere historical curiosity, but they're to represent examples for our instruction that we may not walk in the same pattern of disobedience. And to that end, we do well to consider what Zechariah had to say there in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. Yahweh was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares Yahweh of hosts, Return to me, says Yahweh of hosts, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? And do the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants of prophets, did they not overtake the fathers? So they repented and said, As Yahweh of hosts has purpose to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so has he dealt with us. So Hosea's message was no doubt to be instructive for Judah. He condemned Israel, Israel saw that condemnation, and had to turn at least a little. And yet Judah would persist in the same pattern of rebellion. Jeremiah and Ezekiel would share in Hosea's experience, prophesying while watching it all burn down their own lifetimes. In this way, God has spoken in the past to the prophets in Hebrews 1, 1, 2 Peter 1, 21. And even afterward, generations with persistent rebellion did not heed the message. And so that's why we need to ask, are we going to be different? Are we going to trust in God as they did not? And that's why the prophets remain continually relevant. Our sin may not be the exact same as the sins of the people before us, but our situations are much more alike than we'd care to admit. And that is why we need to avoid sin, uh, unlike the way the people of God in the past did, so that we may not suffer the same consequences as they did. And so we've looked at Hosea 13 and 14 and the end of the prophecies of Hosea. That Yahweh's indictment against the people was finished, they had committed idolatry, they trusted their military and foreign policy, they forgot him, they would meet him in the way and it wouldn't be pleasant. There's this final plea that Hosea makes for Israel to repent, to trust in Yahweh, to offer sacrifice and pay vows, and Yahweh would bless them. But it was all for naught. Israel persisted in rebellion. Hosea most likely watched as it all went down, laid low by the might of Assyria. But for the wise and prudent, Hosea's messages were preserved so they would not persist in the same sins, but could learn from Israel's example and act accordingly. So let's heed that message. Let us turn aside from every idol. Let us turn aside from the conventional wisdom that would uh, seem so compelling, but in the future, and, or in hindsight, will seem so terrible. And instead, recognize the, uh, the voice of God and the prophets, heed the message of God in Christ, and to follow after him. Thanks again for joining us. Perhaps uh, you really enjoyed this. You can share this with your friends online. Certainly appreciate that. If you have any questions or comments, if you'd like to talk about these things further, you'd like to explore our previous discussions in Hosea or other issues, uh, you'd like to come meet with us. Uh, if any way we can be of service, please find us online at VenetureToChrist.org. We're also on uh, social media. If you'd like to contact me personally, you can reach me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.